you're listening to the Depends on How You Look at It podcast, and I'm your host, Isaiah Bridge. Thank you for tuning in to Depends on How You Look at It. Today's episode is really awesome. I'm going to be playing a conversation I had with my friend Tyler Jackson, who is a pastor of Redemption Life Bible Church in Newcastle, Indiana. And we're going to be talking about covenant theology and infant baptism. And we're going to go back and forth. It's not a debate of any kind. Uh, It's just a discussion where we kind of give some pushback and talk it out. So I really appreciate Tyler and his ministry, and we're going to have to have a part two because this is a two-hour episode already, but we really haven't even scratched the surface. So please keep an open mind and try to understand the framework of the theology, and don't just assume your position. So thanks for listening. I am so excited to have my friend Tyler Jackson back on the podcast. Tyler is the lead pastor at Redemption Life Bible Church in Newcastle, Indiana. And even better than that, he's just my friend. (laughs) We talk all the time about this, that, and the other. And I'm so excited to have him on today to talk about covenant theology, which, well, Frankly, I think he's obsessed with, and that's why I want him to come on the show and really convince me the idea of covenant baptism, infant baptism, or he's probably going to call it household baptism. So, Tyler, thank you for coming on the show. And can you maybe simplify the basics of covenant theology in a way for my listeners about, you know, the covenant of work and covenant of grace? Yeah. Well, first of all, brother, thanks so much for having me back. Uh, You know I love you, and I'm so glad to be here. Uh, with you on this on this podcast. Um, and before I begin to give an overview really of covenant theology, which is very diverse, uh, first of all, yeah, uh, I do want to say that I have had a long, hard theological pilgrimage. So I did not start where I am today by any means. In fact, I was born and raised as an Arminian dispensationalist, and I was that for many years. That was my theological system. Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins were my homeboys. I loved <laughs> John MacArthur's study Bible. I mean, I was I was all into it. I know who the Antichrist was. You know, I had it all mapped out uh, thanks to their help. So that's where I came from. And I came out of that later on into Calvinism and, and into a kind of Piper Baptist view. John Piper was, and, and, and in many ways still is one of my great heroes of I've got his collected works here next to me, next to me on my shelves, and and but I, I came out of that even, and when I I started to see Calvinism and its connection to covenant theology, and then covenant theology and its implications, which I think ends up with the Westminster Confession as the as a wonderful description of that theology, and and so that's that's been my my pilgrimage, and it's been hard, and it's been a struggle, it's caused issues, uh, not just for me personally, but even honestly for my wife and I in our first years of marriage when our first child was born. She was born and raised in a, in a tradition where you baptized infants. And ironically, I'm going to be defending that, and I do defend <laughs> it now, but I was vehemently against it. And so that was that was a struggle, and she submitted to my leadership as the head of the house, and, and we did not baptize our daughter when she was born. So this is this is not something I take lightly. 
And it's not something that I expect everyone just to jump on board and to, to get on, you know, my ship or whatever, because it, it has been a struggle for me. It's been a long haul. And so I want to go into this with a kind of humility and a, a kind of patience with people that recognizes that this is not easy by any means to make this transition. And and I want to say also that that if somebody does just quickly jump on board, that's concerning to me yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, because yeah. I think we should be testing things. We should be checking the scriptures. We should be making sure that what we believe and what we're moving toward aligns with the scriptures. So it doesn't ultimately matter what Calvin says or John Owen or Bob Inc or Voss or any of those guys, as much as I love and appreciate them. Uh, what matters ultimately is what scripture teaches. And so that's the most important thing. But as far as covenant theology goes, and I guess I simply could just read the, the Westminster Confession, chapter seven, uh, but I'm not going to do that. I want to kind of flesh it out myself here, but I would direct the listeners to that chapter uh, in the confession. It's a wonderful summary. But I think the easiest way to go about talking about covenant theology is to understand that when you're reading the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the way God moves redemptive history along from Genesis on, the way his plan of salvation develops, the way he collects a people, the way he works things out, it is through covenant making. And I think that's pretty clear. You've got Adam in the garden, um, which is a covenantal relationship. Then you move from there. Clearly, Noah's a covenant relationship. In fact, in the Hebrew, that's the first time that uh, Barit, the word for covenant, shows up. Then you've got after Noah, Abraham and Moses. So clearly God is moving the story along in, in covenants. And so basically all covenant theology does is say that that is the foundational structure of the scriptures. That's how God brings his plan about through this covenant making, which ultimately comes to a climax in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, uh, who, who inaugurates in his shed blood the new covenant which I'm sure most Christians are are familiar with. So, but but in general, when we talk about covenant theology, and I'm just going to talk about two covenants for now. If you want to go into the third one later, we can. But for the sake of simplicity, um, typically, and and the confession in chapter seven says this that there are basically two covenants. There's a covenant of works, uh, which we might call it, and there is a covenant of Grace And these two covenantal structures are built really upon two heads, two federal heads or representatives. Uh, the first Adam, who was made in the garden, and then the last Adam, who is Christ, who is um, our Savior, born of Mary in Nazareth, or in Bethlehem, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, so those are the two heads uh, that are really at the head of these two covenants. And I get this really from Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. I mean, when you look at what Paul says about sin and death and all that we experience in this world, he ties it directly to Adam, uh, who is the first head back in Genesis 1 and 2. But then when he talks about life and forgiveness and righteousness and grace and all of that, he ties it directly to the last Adam, who is Christ. So when you look at the way Paul understands redemptive history, 
when he understands the way God has been saving people forever, he sees one way of salvation, and he sees that way of salvation ultimately in the Son, who is Jesus, who is the last Adam. So I think if you start there, um, then you have to go back and you have to understand Genesis on in light of these two covenants and in light of these two heads. And so first, when we talk about covenant theology, we talk about the covenant of works or, and some people don't like that language. Um, it's also called the covenant of life. Sometimes the Westminster Shorter Catechism calls it the covenant of life in, in uh, question answer 12. And depending on who you read, this has different labels, different names. Some call it the Edenic Covenant, Covenant of Creation. I've noticed uh, that. Um, yeah. So, you know, I've li- I listen to a lot of Covenant guys, whether they're Pado Baptist or <clears throat> Reformed Baptist, and I think typically is when you're trying to explain the Covenant of Works, the Garden Covenant is is what I have been using. Is the word works freaks people out, and it feels it feels like Rome, right? And yeah, we we are not. Sure. We're not Papists, <laughs> and neither neither was Adam. So uh, you go on from there, but I just wanted to clear that up. That is why that, that Garden Covenant can take on a few different names to try to help explain it to people to where it's not just a Roman system of, of merit theology, you know. Right, yeah, and that's the thing. I mean I, I think we need to be honest about that from the beginning, and that is depending on who you're reading, whether it's the Hodges or Bavink or Voss or John Frame or whoever else, Calvin – um, even some of the other guys, the language does change. Sometimes they don't even call it a covenant of works. They don't even refer to it as a covenant of works. I, don't, I think John Murray is one of those guys that doesn't even talk about a covenant of works necessarily. Um, so the thing to look for is not necessarily the label or the title, but the substance right. of the idea, um, which is pretty united Uh, among all of those guys. But the idea with the covenant of works is this. God creates the world in Genesis 1 and 2. uh, And after creating the world, the crown of his creation is man, Adam, mankind, and specifically Adam, a singular figure. And this Adam is seen in the garden. and, And I think in Pauline Um, theology, he is seen as what we would call a federal or a covenant head. He is a representative. And the idea there is that whatever Adam does or whatever he doesn't do, it doesn't only affect him, but it affects all of his posterity, all of his children. And so we understand this to be a covenantal relationship. And in fact, Hosea 6-7, I think, makes it clear that the relationship between Adam and God was covenantal. And I would argue that there is no relationship that exists between God and creation or man that is not covenantal. Um, You have God who is the sovereign Lord. You have Adam who is the servant. You clearly have uh, boundaries in the garden. You have stipulations. You have commands from God. You have blessings and curses, depending on whether Adam obeys those commands or does not obey those commands. That's all covenantal language and substance. So even if the word covenant is not there, the substance of the covenant is there. And I think Hosea refers later to that as a covenant relationship. And and if people are concerned about that, 
because I, you know, we want we want to encourage people who really love the Bible and they say, listen, the word covenant's not there. You're putting it there. I don't like that. <laughs> well, I would say I appreciate that carefulness, especially um, in something like this where they might be changing. But I would mention that Second Samuel seven, when God enters into this relationship with David and He promises him a son who's going to sit on his throne forever and reign over a kingdom forever. Well, the word barit is not there either, but clearly in scripture, it is referred to later as a covenant, the Davidic covenant, the covenant that Yahweh makes with David. So just because the word is not there does not mean it's not a covenantal uh, relationship. What matters the most is the substance. So God makes the world. He makes Adam. Adam is a public person. He's a representative for all of mankind. And essentially, without going into a lot of detail, God blesses Adam. He gives him every tree in the garden. He's to work the garden and to to honor God as an image bearer of God. But then in Genesis 2.17, God gives him a very specific command and that is that that he can eat from every tree in the garden except for the knowledge of the good, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day that he eats of that tree, he will die. So there we've got a clear boundary. And if that boundary is transgressed or crossed, there is a curse. There is a punishment. And that punishment is death. So we have this tree in the midst of the garden that represents death for Adam, if he disobeys God, if he doesn't offer God obedience as his servant. But there's another tree as well, and that is the tree of life, as most Christians who have read their Bibles know. And Genesis 3.22 teaches us that this tree of life represents eternal life. So in a sense, you have Adam, a servant of the Lord, an image bearer of God who exists for the glory of God, who exists for serving God and and having children who will cover the earth with his glory as image bearers. You have this man, and God has put life and death before him. That's essentially the picture. Um, Adam will walk in trustful friendship with God. He will obey God. He will trust and walk by every word that comes from the mouth of God, or he won't. And the idea is, if he does, the tree of life represents, I think, a kind of life that he does not yet possess, which I'll get into in a minute, whereas the tree of death represents the curse for covenant breakers. And so that's what's before Adam keeping in mind that he does not just represent himself and not just himself and Eve, but all of mankind, every single human being who will come after Adam born in the flesh like you and me and everyone else who is listening to this podcast. So when we think about the tree of life and what was offered up to Adam, I think this is very important for us if we're going to properly understand the covenant of works And what was held out to Adam? When we think about Adam in the garden, one of the things that is obvious is that Adam had the potential to sin. He was not, I don't think he was made with what the Roman Catholics called concupiscence, you know, that fancy word that really means 
uh, bent towards sin in his flesh or something like that. I don't I don't buy that at all. I think the Westminster standards are right that Adam was made in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. He was positively righteous, positively holy. He he did not have a sin nature. He had no bent towards sin. So I don't buy that for a moment. But what he did have or what he didn't have was the inability to sin. So he is made as an image bearer of God who can sin against God, who can ultimately die if he sins. And so therefore, there must be a kind of life offered to Adam in the garden that that takes him from where he is to what Voss calls a higher life, something greater than what he actually possesses. And I think that's what the tree of life ultimately represents. The tree of life, in my opinion, represents what we now would call glory. Adam is created in a state of what theologians call innocence. He is righteous. He is holy. There's no sin in him. But he is not yet in the state of glory, which is a confirmed state of righteousness that can never be lost. And that is actually, when you think about the other end of the spectrum— for us as Christians, that is the very thing that's promised to us in Christ, right? We we think about the ultimate end. If we think about Romans 8, that we go from justified ultimately to glorified. And that position of glorified is a position that can never be lost. Once we enter that position, once we are in the new heavens and new earth, there is no more sin. There can never be a fall again. Mankind who exists in that realm with God can never fall from that state. But that is not true of Adam in the garden, which is obvious because he does fall, right? So I think that is the framework that we have to have here in the garden for for Adam, which means that when God makes Adam and he enters into this covenant relationship with Adam, that covenantal relationship is supposed to lead from where he is in his state of innocence to a state of glory and immutability in the sin sense that can never be lost, which is why theologians refer to this period as a period of probation or testing. And the question is, will this Adam, who is made in the image of God, will he obey God? And will he walk with God in trustful friendship, clinging to every word that comes from his mouth ultimately ending in a confirmed righteousness and a confirmed status and a confirmed glory that can never be lost, which is for he and his offspring? Or will this Adam figure disobey God and die and take all of his children and all of his posterity with him? So I think that's the framework, and I think that's how we have to understand Adam in his position and the tree of life and what is offered to him in this covenant relationship, which we call it a covenant, which is why we call it a covenant of works. What is demanded for Adam to go from innocence to glory and the position of never being able to fall again, it is perfect and exact obedience. But pretty much everyone who's a Christian knows, because it's so important to the story, that that's not at all what, what Adam actually does. But instead, we know that Adam eats from the forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He sins against God, and ultimately death comes into existence because of his covenant breaking, because of his sin. So 
that's now the big problem in the story is that Adam was in covenant with God. This higher life, this immutable glory was offered to him if he eats uh, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And theologians also are divided on that. I take that tree to be sacramental in the sense that it is a sign that points to the life. I don't necessarily think that eternal life was bound up and they're actually eating of the fruit. Um, I don't know where I'm at on that either, um, actually, because neither one of us can deny that tree shows up again in Revelation. The question is, is it purely like saying, hey, here we are again, eternal life, or is it, hey, this is a literal tree? (laughs) Right. Well, yeah, and that's, you know, this is one of those areas where I would say, who knows exactly? You know, I will find out, won't we? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. But I do, you know, Voss, um, he's one of my favorite theologians. So his name comes up a lot when I'm, I'm talking, but you know, Voss says that this tree is sacramental in the sense that, that it does represent that life, which was held out to Adam. And that life is ultimately given to Adam by God and not by this tree on its own. So that's why Voss uses that sacramental language, sacrament being a sign and seal, um, which will come up again later when we talk about baptism. But the idea here is that Adam does break covenant. He does sin against God. He does eat from the forbidden tree. And now because of his covenant breaking, he and Eve, Eve who was deceived by the serpent and then gave the fruit to Adam, they are now cast out of the garden, which I think becomes a very clear picture of death. I think from this point on, exile equals death, and death is ultimately alienation from God, physical, spiritual, and eternal. I don't think death in the garden, when God says, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die, he's not talking about spiritual death Um, as a category of its own. I think he's talking about death in all of its fullness, physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. It's death, but, but we obviously don't see them die physically, but they are cast out of God's presence. So something is going on here, and I think all of this is meant to teach us that they have died in a way, even though they haven't physically died, which demands grace, as I'll get to But they are now cast out of the presence of God. They're outside of the garden. And now I think what this teaches us is that everyone who is now born in Adam in the flesh by natural generation, just human beings who come into the world after the first human being, Adam, we are now born outside of the garden. We are now born alienated from God. We are now born dead in our sins and trespasses. We are now born guilty under the wrath of God and only worthy of death because we are born in Adam outside of the garden, which represents all of that. So the idea here – go ahead. Yeah, no, you're good. Ultimately, and again, I'm – I'm not going to argue spiritual death here because I think there is something to it, uh, but that's not the really topic of our discussion. But ultimately, babies now are born mortal. They can die. Uh, I know that more than anybody because I was told I wouldn't really make it past birth. So there's this – the curse of sin and death 
you know, it's something there's something wrong with us in the here and now, as in we sin and we're rebellious, but it is also going to consummate and we will die. And the gospel is all about resurrection. So go on, but I wanted I wanted to pepper that in there. Yeah, absolutely. And amen to that. I mean, that's one of the most obvious examples or arguments, I think, for for what is happening in and through Adam. I mean, if everyone is born sinless, if everyone is born innocent, then it makes no sense that babies die or mm-hmm. anybody who doesn't have the ability to make a conscious physical choice that would be sin, which would then lead to death, right? So this teaches us that even infants at three days old or even infants in the womb can die, and that death is the result of Adam's covenant breaking in the garden. And because he is their covenant head, they can die even before they consciously make a decision. And so this is one of the greatest ways to argue for original sin, the doctrine of total depravity. It's all really bound up in in all of this stuff. And so Romans 5.18 says, one trespass, clearly pointing back to Adam, led to condemnation for all men. So the idea, as we've said, is that Adam represented all of mankind, not just himself and not even just Eve. And so God demanded of him perfect and exact obedience. He did not do it. And now every human being born in him cannot do it either. We are all born depraved. We're all born with a sin nature. We are all born outside of the garden, alienated from God, dead in our sins and trespasses, all of that apart from grace. And I think this is when you're reading Paul, this is one of the reasons for why Paul is constantly giving us this this picture of justification cannot come by works of the law ever. It's an impossibility. It only comes by grace through faith. And the reason he can say that is because we are in Adam and because Adam broke covenant and because we are in Adam, we are born as covenant breakers with the inability to offer the perfect and exact obedience that God demands. So, but now there's a huge elephant in the room, right? And the elephant is Adam is still alive after he sins, which is an Mm -hmm. obvious problem because God said to Adam, this is even before Eve comes on to the scene, right? He tells Adam this and then he makes Eve. But, But he tells Adam, in the day that you eat of it, you will die. But Adam sins against God, he and Eve together, and now they go off hiding, they're breathing, they're still alive, and the Lord comes in the spirit of the day, and he is coming to judge them, which implies already that there is grace in view. Because apart from grace, at least common grace here, they should be dead. So the very fact that they're not dead teaches us one of two things. God's a liar, which I would say no to, and I'm sure you would also, brother. Of course. Um, Or there is an implication that God's mercy and grace is already being extended, which is what I would go with. And so long story short, even though Adam and Eve are going to be cast out of the garden and they're going to go into exile east of Eden, it is obvious that God has already started extending grace to them after their covenant breaking. And not only that, but 
in Genesis 3.15, we get this incredible promise, which theologians call the, the first gospel, the proto-euangelion, and that is that God is going to bring forth from Eve a seed, a seed of woman who is going to crush this serpent and his offspring, the serpent who deceived Eve, the serpent who brought the temptation into the garden. He is going to bring forth a seed of woman who will once for all crush the serpent's skull and imply bring all things to restoration, which all of the details are then flushed out as, as the story goes on. And so the clear implication here is that God is not wiping out humanity. God is not wiping out Adam and Eve, but instead he is graciously going to preserve them. He is graciously going to put enmity between this woman and the serpent so that man cannot side with the serpent forever. There's going to be a kind of war that keeps them apart at the decree of God. And God graciously is going to bring forth a, a seed of woman who is going to crush the serpent and bring victory and salvation and restoration to the world. And ultimately, we know that that seed of woman is Jesus Christ, who is, as we said in the beginning, who is the other head in the covenantal structure of Scripture, the head of the covenant of grace. And so I think the idea here is that God is going to bring forth another seed, another man, ultimately, who is going to do what Adam did not do. And not only is he going to do what Adam did not do in offering perfect and exact obedience, but this same seed is going to bear the curse that is a result of Adam's sin. So the last Adam is going to come doing even more than Adam, the first Adam, was commanded to do. And that is he's going to come as a man. He's going to live a life of perfect and exact obedience, a period of testing and probation. And then at the end of this life of perfect and exact obedience in fulfilling the law, he's going to die on the cross and bear the wrath of God and bear the curse of God, which was the curse for Adam's transgression. So that's... The other covenantal structure that is inaugurated, I think, right immediately after sin, the covenant of grace, which is ultimately bound up in the seed of woman, who we know to be Christ. And I think God already begins to teach Adam and Eve about this covenant of grace in the garden, even before he casts them out of the garden. And I say that because if our listeners remember after Adam and Eve sin against God, they cover themselves with fig leaves and they hide from God. But once God comes walking in the garden in the spirit of the day, he doesn't leave them with their fig leaves. But instead he calls them forth. He does the cursing. He does all of that stuff in Genesis 3, 15 and, and following. But then God graciously covers them. He covers them with the skins of animals before he sends them out of the garden, which means what? It implies that in place of their death, something died. Some mm -hmm. blood was shed. Some animal was slain in their place that they might be covered, even though they were going to be sent out of the presence of God east of Eden. And not only that. But after that, 
in Genesis 3.20, for the very first time in, in the story, Adam actually names this woman. He names his wife and he calls her Eve. And her name in Hebrew literally means life giver. She is the one from whom life is going to come forth, which means, I think, that Adam names his wife in response to that promise that God gives in Genesis 3.15, which means what? That Adam has already begun believing in the Lord and in his promise, which means that the first Adam has already entered into this covenant of grace where he will be saved by the last Adam. So I think you already begin to see the pieces of what we call the gospel already here in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. All of the bloodshed, the promise of the Savior. Um, And then after Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden, God puts a cherub there with a flaming sword moving every way. And what what does that tell us? It tells us that if anyone is ever going to reenter this garden and eat from this tree of life, to have the life that is sacramentally put forth in this tree, this higher life, this eternal life, this glory that is immutable and that it can't be lost, he must pass through this flaming sword. Well, who does that? The answer is the last Adam. It's the seed of Eve. It's the seed of woman who does come into the world. He passes through the flaming sword. He's resurrected, and he is the one who now offers this life that is held out in the tree of life, which is, as you said, why the tree of life enters into the picture in the new heavens and new earth, where the lamb who was slain is. That that tree represents the very life that now Christ offers to all who believe in this covenant of of grace. Awesome. I man, I, I really don't have any <clears throat> any pushback against that at all. I've I, I think being a consistent uh, believer in election and, and things like that, you have to have these covenantal structures or else it doesn't really make sense. And you get into this thinking of, well, kids are born innocent until they sin and Pelagianism and this, that and the other, which I've fallen into that kind of thinking. But um, it, it is interesting, and I, I want to point this out because you pointed out, in the garden, we see substitutionary atonement illustrated for us, do we not? Absolutely, 100%. And that's why I think when we think about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, which I think are the only two covenantal structures ultimately that run through Scripture, you see all of those elements of the gospel which is the way of salvation in the covenant of grace. You see all of those things already popping up, right? So when you have these these animals, we presume, slain so that their skins might cover Adam and Eve, well, that is already preparing us for what's going to happen under Moses and all the sacrificial realities, that whole system, which is then ultimately paving the way for the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. So already the gospel is being preached in Genesis 3.15. And so I would say when you're talking covenant theology, and I want to be basic, especially for those who are new to this, there are ultimately two ways of salvation in Scripture starting right after the fall, and that is you either perfectly obey God with absolute obedience, with no sin at all, which is impossible, so that rules out one way, 
or you turn to the Lord who has revealed himself um, in the scriptures. You, you trust in him and in his promises. And on this side of the cross, we trust in the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus, who is the very seed promise in Genesis 3.15, which means, as I preached on Sunday to our church from Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, that there is only one people of God. There's only ever been one way of salvation, that is, by grace through faith. And, and that's the way it is, which I think really helps simplify the Bible for a lot of people, especially when they've been born and raised on on dispensational teaching that says God did this thing during this period, that failed, so now he's going to do this thing during this period, and well, that failed, so now it's almost like God is trying to do all of these things that he can't accomplish, and then finally he brings forth Christ and the gospel, and I'm saying, and covenant theologians are saying, no, salvation by grace alone through faith and this promised offspring, this promised seed, has always been the way of salvation which is why in Hebrews 11, we can point to Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham as those who belong to the single household of faith and the single covenant of grace in which there is salvation in that Savior Christ from Genesis 3.15. So is that, does that make sense, brother? No, it definitely makes sense. And I arrived at everything you just said through changing eschatology, believe it or not, because I was raised dispensational, so I'm thinking there's the church, and then there's the ethnic people of Israel, and they're still waiting on their redemption, and we're, there's nothing there's nothing consistent about either. Or I'm, I'm wording that wrong. There is nothing in common I have with the ethnic Israelite. We are of two different peoples, and that's what I thought. But I realized that, no, wait a minute. If the patriarchs can be said to be in Christ— we have a problem here with my system. So I worked backwards, and really, I, I do lean towards this covenant theology you're speaking of, but I'm very influenced by Reformed Baptist thinking, and this is why I wanted to have this conversation, because I just want to flesh some things out and discuss some key points, because you know, I, I, I don't see how salvation is possible in the Old Testament without the idea of a covenant of grace. There, there are either there's two kinds of people: those that are in Adam and those that are in Christ. And if we accept that, we accept federal headship. And to me, the dominoes fall. The question is, does that lead? And I know you're going to say yes, but for me, I'm still. Ugh. <laughs> does that lead to pedo baptism, household baptism? And I, I would ask that. Let's start the transition here because I think we've made a good. You've made a very good, simple case of covenant theology of what Adam was told to do and what he failed to do and what Christ did and succeeded and the grace that covers those who trust in Christ. It's, it's, it can be simplified like that, but volumes and volumes and volumes of books have been written on covenant theology, as you know. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, Tyler, can you start the case for pedo-baptism, and let's just start walking through it and see where we go. Absolutely, brother. Yeah. I, you know, when I was wrestling with this and I wrestled with it for a very long time until I came around really to embracing it and truly loving it and now preaching it and, and trying to call people to it. Um, when I was going through this whole process, you know, I was asking all kinds of people, what's your best argument? 
you know, how do you deal with this? How do you deal with that? And and there were some answers that really just ticked me off. And now I look back and I'm so thankful for the answers. And one of them is Pastor Mark Jones. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he wrote Knowing Christ, which is kind of a companion to Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And I was talking to him one day and he's in the PCA. He's a pastor, a Presbyterian minister. And I said, Pastor Mark, I said, what is your very best argument for why the children of believers should be baptized now in the new covenant? And he said to me, tick me off. And now I love it and I appreciate it. But he said, read the Bible from left to right. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's snobbish. What do you mean? You know, but what he meant was, is don't don't read the Bible from Acts on, but read the Bible from Genesis on and watch how God has formulated his people. Watch how God has has brought forth his plan of salvation. Watch how the plan of God in redemptive history has has unfolded. And when you see all of that, it will make sense. And as angry as I was at his short, snippy answer, I really now appreciate that. And I think it's it's true, as I'll, as I'll show us. But another person that really helped me, who is a, a dear father in the faith to me these days, a man that I love. I've talked to him every month. He sent me handwritten letters that I love. Um, his name is Pastor Bill Shishko, and he's not a famous man by any means. He's a He's an OPC pastor in New York. He's a wonderful man. But he also helped me a lot to see these things and to see these things from Scripture. And so I would encourage our listeners after this, if they're not convinced, and I hope they're not (laughs) convinced just after this podcast, but I would encourage them to go listen to Pastor Bill and his debate with James White on the issue of baptism He also did a wonderful Sunday school series, like 30 weeks long, an hour apiece on the issue of baptism. He he traces that from the Old Testament into the New Testament. It's wonderful. I think it's on sermon audio. But I would I would direct them to to him. But in general, I, I don't think now that the argument is that difficult. And and here's why I say that. When we do start reading the Bible from left to right, and when we start thinking about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace as the only two realms in which we can live as human beings, and the covenant of grace, which is the realm of salvation and forgiveness and all of that, well, what we begin to see is that God has always included the children of believers in his covenant and among his covenant people. And that's just a fact. When God enters in to covenant with Abraham, for example, which I believe is an administration of the covenant of grace, God gives Abraham the sign of circumcision, and that sign is not just placed on Abraham, but it's placed on Abraham's household. It's placed on Ishmael. It's placed on Isaac at eight days old. And so the idea, when you begin looking at the Abrahamic covenant, in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, and and in all of that area, what you see is that God does not just enter into covenant with Abraham as an individual, but God enters into covenant with Abraham as, as a man, 
who has a family, and God takes Abraham and his family, and he promises Abraham that I will be God to you and to your house. I will be God to you and to your offspring. In the same way that God dealt with Noah, if we go back a few chapters, chapters 6 through 10 or so in Genesis, when God enters into covenant with Noah and when he saves him by grace— out of the wicked world that he's about to judge with water, killing every creature and every human being except for those on the ark, God does not just take Noah as an individual upon the ark, but he takes Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. He deals with Noah and his house. And the same thing is seen under Moses. When when Moses goes and he is bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt, and when God tells Moses to tell the people to put blood, the blood of a lamb over their homes so that they don't die when the the angel of death comes through. God is dealing with these people by way of households. And so I think what we see starting in Genesis and moving through the scriptures is that God is a God of families. He doesn't just save individuals. um, He doesn't just call individuals to belong to his covenant people, but he takes those individuals and their families, and he sets them apart for himself. And and even when you watch God calling his people together, whether you're in Joel or whether you're in Deuteronomy or wherever you are in the scriptures, when he calls for his people to come together corporately for repentance and for scripture reading and listening and all of these events, he always calls for the families He calls for the men and the wives and even the children. So God, that is his pattern. That is his established way of doing things. Beginning in Genesis, it is you and your house, you and your offspring. And so the question is, does that pattern and that way of doing things in God's covenant dealings with his people, does that stop when you enter into the new covenant. So the hermeneutic, I think, foundationally is different. When you're talking to Baptists or when you're talking to any other group that holds to believer baptism exclusively because of what you're seeing in the book of Acts, basically their hermeneutic is look up baptism passages, see who is baptized, see what happens in that situation, and that's our doctrine of baptism. Whereas the view that I'm putting forth, the hermeneutic is different. The hermeneutic is start in Genesis, understand the way God is dealing with his covenant people, understand that God places the sign of his covenant upon believers and their children. And now once you come into the new covenant in Christ, when you come to the New Testament scriptures, the question is now, has that stopped? And has God specifically said anywhere that the pattern of old is no longer the pattern for the new covenant people? And the answer is, that does not happen anywhere. There is nowhere in the New Testament scriptures where God says, I no longer include the children of believers in the covenant, only those who profess faith, not the infants who cannot physically or consciously profess faith. And so, but on the other side, and contrary to that view, 
I think very clearly in Acts and in other New Testament books, what you see is that same exact pattern continued. And it is crystal clear. God deals with households in the Old Covenant. And when you come to the New Covenant, when you see people baptized in Acts, very often it's households baptized. The household is mentioned. So why? Well, the answer is because that's God's pattern. That's the way he has been including his people in the covenant from the beginning. It's always you and your house. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And not only that, but when you begin to see this, you begin to see that even the Apostle Paul, when he addresses the church, when he writes to the saints who are in Ephesus or to the saints who are in Colossae, does he not include the children? Yes, he does. He he doesn't skip over them as if they don't belong to the people of God, but instead he addresses them specifically, and he addresses them as covenant children, telling them to obey their fathers and mothers, to honor their fathers and mothers, so that it might go well with them. This is the commandment, the first commandment with a promise. And what is he doing? He is alluding to the Ten Commandments which is the covenant the, the covenant under Moses, those 10 words, that was the covenant. And so what he is saying to these children is, you belong to the covenant, you belong to the church, just as much as the children did in the old covenant. And so regarding baptism specifically now, the question is, if God marked off his people with a sign in the Old Testament under the old covenant, and in that covenant of grace, then why would he not still mark off not just believers and their children now with no word at all, utter silence about that not continuing? So I think what I began to see is that the hermeneutic is different. It's not, it's not just a word study on, on baptizo or bapto. It's not just looking up baptism passages to see what exactly happens there, which those are all good things, and we should do all of those things. But the question is is even more foundational, and that is what hermeneutic are we using to read the scriptures? And I think that Pastor Mark was right, and that is if we read from left to right, from Genesis on, and we use that same hermeneutic and we watch how God builds his people and, and those whom he includes in his covenant dealings, then by nature, once you come to the new covenant, you're going to expect all of that to continue unless God says otherwise, which he doesn't. So okay. yeah, yeah, go ahead, brother. Oh, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. Finish your sentence. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to add that I think I think one of the biggest struggles, and I, I don't say this to be offensive. I, I trust that those who are listening are are people who are serious about the scriptures. They want to know. They want to be faithful. But I do wonder if part of our problem with this, this idea of households and including the children and all of that, has to do with our individualist American attitude. We are very individualistic. It's about me. And my personal relationship with Christ, it's always about the individual, which is not biblical. God deals with families, and he deals with multiple generations, and I think the scriptures abound with that kind of language. And I think the scriptures are clear that the way God builds his people, the way God 
furthers his covenant and his kingdom. It is through believers and their children, generation after generation. I think that's the normative pattern. I think you see that with Timothy, who was faithful to the teaching as a covenant child, to the teaching of his grandmother and his mother. And I think that's the way God um, deals with his people. That's the way he builds his people. And quite frankly, one of my hopes as a father is, is to see my four children grow up as covenant children, as believers in the Lord, from the moment that they can do anything at all, never actually having remembered a time when they haven't believed. That's my hope as a father. And I think I should be able to expect that. And I am encouraged by the scriptures when I read about this kind of way that God works, because I think I think that will happen. And I that's just in summary, I think the hermeneutic yeah, yeah, is important yeah. and the hermeneutic, which goes against the grain of our American individualism. So I have a lot to respond to, but I don't think it's right to do it just yet. I want to keep going through the outline we prepared. But listeners, I actually am going to be writing down a bullet point list as he speaks, and I'm going to respond to some of the arguments he just made regarding the new covenant um, has continuity has continuity with the old covenant, as in the pattern of families and households hasn't changed. I want to respond to that. I want to respond to the individualistic charge. I want to respond to all that. Right now, all I'm going to say is, to be fair, and Tyler, you know this, most Baptist people do not exclude their children from church activities. They teach their children. They baptize their children at a very young age when they profess the faith. The question is, today we're discussing the infant, the eight-day-old infant, the three-month-old infant, whatever, that really cannot express faith. That's that's where I'm at. That's what I want to talk about. So when you when you talk about Timothy growing up in the faith, I'm sorry, my friend, it doesn't do anything for me because it says he knew it from his youth. That doesn't mean he was eight days old. Uh, things like that don't convince me. And no, I'm not going to use the Acts argument and just say, well, only believers were baptized. There's a lot more to this that is covenantal. And we're going to get in to the nature of the new covenant, too, in our final part of our discussion. But now, I want Tyler to define his position more. So, Tyler, what exactly – and, and this is a hard question, I think, for everybody in general, but what does baptism do for an infant? What do you believe you're doing when you sprinkle the baby or whatever? What, what's going on? Yeah, really good question, brother. Well, I would say that, first of all, we have to define what baptism is which means that we really have to define what the sacraments are, even circumcision. So I just want to go back and, and kind of define these things, and I think it will help us better understand really what we're asking when we say what does baptism do to this child who has not yet professed faith or what have you. Um, baptism is – and all the sacraments are, are what we would call signs and seals, and that language is biblical. It comes really from Romans 4.11 where Paul calls circumcision, he says a sign, he calls it a sign, the sign of circumcision, which was the seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. So that language is biblical. And, and I think we have to unpack what that means to understand what baptism means for 
a child. And so basically what a sign is, when we talk about baptism as a sign, baptism is a sign in the sense that it it points to something greater. It points to something beyond itself. In the same way that physical circumcision, according to Paul, pointed to righteousness that Abraham had by faith, or we might even say that circumcision, according to the old covenant, Jeremiah 4, 4, Deuteronomy 30, different passages, just as that physical circumcision pointed to spiritual circumcision, circumcision of the heart, well, in that way, baptism also, the water in baptism points beyond itself, meaning it's not about the physical water doing anything specifically. And the moment you say that that is what it does, you end up in the, the realm of Roman Catholicism and this kind of sacerdotal view where the water is actually affecting the very thing that it signifies, which is not true. The reform position and the listeners can look at the Westminster Confession, uh, chapters 27, 28. I think that's around uh, where I'm thinking the sacraments and then baptism. The reform view is that there is a sign and that sign points to the thing signified. So then the question is, what then does baptism as a sign point to? And my answer is ultimately that the sign baptism points to the ultimate baptism, which really matters ultimately, and that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is the baptism that Christ himself administers. And the reason I say this is because if you remember in the Gospels, John the Baptist comes saying, he comes saying, I come baptizing you with water, but the one who comes after you, he comes baptizing with what? Not water, but the Holy Spirit, which already teaches us, I think from the beginning, that Christian baptism which is bound up in the Messiah, is ultimately a baptism in the Holy Spirit. So whatever whatever baptism otherwise means, it has to be bound to the Spirit in some way. So in Matthew 28, when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me, and then he says, go baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that baptism, I think, that water baptism that now sets uh, the people of, of the Messiah apart from the world, that baptism must point to a greater baptism, which the Messiah himself pours out, which is the Spirit. Or we can say it this way, that baptism by water points us beyond the water itself to the Holy Spirit, who is the one who comes applying the finished work of Christ. And so all of this, I think, is very important in, in thinking about what baptism is and then ultimately why the children of believers should be baptized. So in one sense, water baptism, if it points beyond itself to spirit baptism, which is the very baptism that the Messiah brings and pours out, then in a sense, that baptism points to all that is summed up in the gospel of Christ. Whatever Christ accomplished whatever he promises, whatever is offered in his finished work, his life, death, and resurrection, all of that, it is summed up and signified in this sign, which we call baptism. 
because it is the spirit who comes applying all of that work. And it is the spirit who accomplishes that in God's chosen people, beginning with regeneration. So in a sense, and this is what many have said before, the sacraments like baptism and even the Lord's Supper are gospel pictures. They put in physical form and sensible sign what we believe in the gospel word. So they're, they're pictures. So therefore, water, when we talk about baptism, as a sign and the spirit is the thing signified. So that's the way we understand baptism as a sacrament and as a as a sign. And when we talk about baptism as a as a seal, the idea here is that seal is a confirmation. The seal is a physical reality that assures to us that the things signified, all of the promises, all of the realities, they are true and they are for all who believe. So that's first and foremost the way I understand baptism. In simplest language, in simplest terms, water baptism points us beyond itself to spirit baptism. And the spirit is the one who applies all of the finished work of Christ ultimately to the elect, beginning with regeneration. So when we talk about baptism in relation to infants, um, what we are saying or what we are doing is we are placing this sign and this seal of the covenant upon a child. They, we are holding out this sign and seal to this child way before the child can actually consciously or physically receive it or even believe in all that is bound up in that sign. And this is where I think what we actually see is consistent Calvinism. When we are baptizing these children, we are we are placing the name of God upon them. In a sense, Jesus is holding these children in his hands through his ministers. And, and that is, in a sense, God loving his covenant people, God loving the children of believers well before these children can respond to him. So in summary, I, I think really what, what we're saying is not necessarily that these children are saved because they've been baptized in water, not necessarily that they are regenerated because they've been baptized in water, but what we are saying is that they do belong to the covenant people. They are counted as holy, 1 Corinthians 7, 14. And the, the sign and seal of all that God promises in the gospel is placed upon them because they are the children of believers. And therefore we baptize in faith because God has promised to be not just God to believers, but to believers and their children. So, in general, that's that's what's going on there. We're not securing their salvation necessarily. We're not saying that they're elect necessarily. We're not saying that they're regenerated necessarily, because quite frankly, we don't know. And and surely the Baptists would say that as well about we anyone. Don't know. Right. We don't know. Yeah. We don't know whether we don't know if it's an eight day old infant or an 80 year old woman. We don't know ultimately any of those things. We only know what we see, but but then in a real sense, what baptism does for this child is 
in in light of all the other things that it means and represents, this is the front door into the covenant people of God. This sign and seal of the covenant of grace, the new covenant in the New Testament baptism, it is now what sets this child apart from the other children of the world. They now are seen to belong to the covenant people of God. And, and we should expect, I think, because of what this means, because of the sign that's placed upon them, and because of the promises of God that are to believers and their children, that we should expect to see these young children raised up in the faith if their parents are faithful, and we should see them walking in the faith um, that has been theirs from the very beginning. And it's all rooted ultimately in the promise of God that he will be God to us and our children, which is not just made in Genesis 17, but it is a promise that that comes again and again, even in new new covenant passages like Jeremiah 32, uh, 20, 39 and and following. So in in summary, that's that's it. But if you have any questions, we can go further in one direction or another. No, I, I'm going to. Again, most of what you just said, I, I'm going to cover when we get into the nature of the new covenant. Is there anything you would like to specify on what baptism does for an adult convert, or would you pretty much sit sit pretty what you just defined for an infant is the same reality for the adult convert? Yeah, well, I would say that baptism theologically and by definition, I think you and I would agree that it should not change. If it does change, I think we have problems. If, that's, if our well, that's why I'm trying to catch you here. I'm trying to make sure you don't think something's different. <laughs> no, no. Well, I think what if someone begins defining baptism as meaning something totally different for a child than it does an adult, for me, that's a red flag. So I, I would want to stay away from that. I don't want to redefine baptism, which is why I, I think – we need to come out and we just need to be honest about our theology. If we do have holes, if we do have faults, then we should see those and fix them and repent of them and walk in truth. But but in general, no, I would not redefine baptism for an adult. All that I would say for an adult is that the adult who has professed faith, who has repented of sin, who is clinging to Christ by faith, whom we think is regenerate now because of their repentance and faith— what they are doing is they are now actively clinging to all that that baptism actually represents. So in one sense, baptism is not changing, but their relationship to that baptism is changing. So whereas an infant is baptized in faith in the promises of God, and whereas baptism means all of the same things for that child who cannot yet physically or consciously receive those things in their person, well, an adult convert who has the mental capacity and the ability to receive them, that's what they're doing. They're receiving all that that baptism signifies and seals. They're just on the other side. They're receiving that sign and seal after they've professed faith, and we assume have received all of the benefits that are signified and sealed in that baptism. So that's the main distinction. The main distinction is that a child at eight days old cannot consciously or physically receive in their, in their human faculties all that is symbolized or signified and sealed in that baptism, whereas an adult can. 
so that's that's my answer to that. Okay, that's great. Um, I just wanted to make sure, and I I'm I didn't think you you uh, held this, but we know there are people in your camp, and maybe you don't even consider your camp that would define things differently, and it it gets weird, like the federal vision stuff and all that. Um, so let's let's discuss some key scriptures that you know support your view, or maybe that works against your view, depending on how you look at it. That is the show; depends on how you look at it. So I'm going to introduce the text. We're only going to work through a few because I really want to get to the new covenant. I think that is the crux of the argument. Um, but let's let's go with what I see Tyler quote all the time on Facebook because this is you know I'm friends with Tyler on Facebook. So Acts 2:38. Let me just read that really quickly, and uh, this is. Um, this is Peter's proclamation to repent and be baptized. And uh, as they, they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and confirmed to extort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So I am not going to hit Tyler with the argument of, well, you know, only believers were baptized here. I'm pretty sure he knows that. But uh, what I, I am curious about, and we've had discussions on Facebook, the promise is for you and for your children, and, and he believes this is – you know why we, you know part of the reason we baptize our children is because the promises of God are bound up in the covenant uh, signs and seals. Okay, Tyler, what in the world is the promise being conveyed to your infant child? That this is what I cannot get my head around. Gotcha. Yeah, well, that's a good question, and I, I think the answer, and I'll show you why I say this. The answer is the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far off. And I would. I would want our listeners to see here that that Peter on the day of Pentecost, the scriptures make clear, is talking to men. And I think that these are men who are heads of their households. And and the scriptures teach us that these are Jewish men from every nation under heaven. And so what I want to do first is I want us to see that in light of these Jewish men, so these are this is not the generic word for mankind, which signifies men and possibly women, but this is the Greek word for men, men, masculine men only. And they're Jewish, which means that when they hear this, this verse from Peter, and he says the promise is for you and for your children, these men are surely going to hear what God has been saying since Genesis chapters 12, 15, and 17. God has made it clear from the beginning that he is God to Abraham and God to his offspring. And here, Peter is using that same identical language to these Jewish men on the day of Pentecost and the new covenant. And so I would say from the beginning, generically and in general, if something was going to be different here, and if God's pattern in dealing with believers and their children, if that was going to change, this would be the place to change it. And it would not be the place to use the same identical language that continues that pattern. So that's the first thing I want us to see is that I see here 
And Reformed theologians of old have seen here the same exact pattern. And specifically, it is the very pattern that God used when he when he drew Abram, uh, Abram, who was later called Abraham, out of Ur of Chaldea. He said, I will be God to you. From you will come a mighty nation. That's his children. And from that, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There's that threefold promise of God, and that's the threefold promise that's happening here in in Acts 2. But I said that I think the promise is the Holy Spirit. And the reason is, if you go back to Luke's first book, Luke 24, verse uh, 49, Jesus himself says to his apostles, behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. So Peter, or uh, Luke, I'm sorry, has been using this language um, Jesus used this language back in Luke at the end of the gospel. Then Acts opens up, Acts 1, 4, and 5. It says, while staying with them, he ordered them, Jesus again, ordered the apostles not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And then Acts 2, 33, which is getting closer to our text, it says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of of the Holy Spirit, he, that is the Messiah, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And so then you come to the text that you just quoted, Acts 2, 38 and 39, and and Peter tells these men who are seeing all of these things, the works of the Spirit who's been poured out by the Messiah on the day of Pentecost, he tells them that this gift of the Holy Spirit will be given to them If they repent and believe, their sins will be forgiven. And then he says, for the promise, which I take to be the Holy Spirit, is for you and for your children and all who are far off, which I take to be the Gentiles, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So the promise is the Spirit, and the promise pattern of God from Genesis is still in view, and I think that's that's the answer. Okay. So— is it fair to say, or am I misunderstanding, your, the infant who's baptized has the promise of the Holy Spirit? Well, I would say that not every single individual child of believers necessarily has the Holy Spirit at birth. I, I don't believe that when God makes promises to his people— I think that scripture is clear that he does not necessarily include every single individual who belongs to the body of people he is addressing. I think that's a clear pattern in scripture that God does make promises. He does make promises to his people. I think we should hope in these promises and trust in these promises, but that does not necessitate that it will be true of every single individual and and I think this is where we really get into the the issue of the the prescriptive or the revealed will of God and the decretive or the secret will of God. I think that is one of the issues that is at work here. I think the promise is true. I think Peter clearly gives this promise to these people. It's in the Word of God. I think we should believe it. But But that does not necessarily mean every child of every believer, because in the decreed will of God, the secret will of God, we know 
that that is not necessarily true. But that should not take away from the promise that God gives. Um, in, in, in the same way that the doctrine of election and the doctrine of sovereign regeneration should not take away from us repenting and believing. It should not take away from us preaching the gospel to all people, not knowing if if anyone who is in that situation or around us is going to believe. We don't know those things. All that we know is what Scripture says. All that we know is, is what God has promised, and I think that's what we live our lives by. Right, except God doesn't promise to save every person on the planet, and you're specifically saying the promise is for you and your children. There's a difference there. Now, I get compatibilism, and we got to preach the gospel to everybody because we do not know the identity of the elect. But I have a real problem saying, well, the promise is for you and your offspring, maybe. I, I can't – I just uh, – brother, I help me. <laughs> well, I mean I think the answer is, is what we've said, and that is I think here you're assuming that when God makes promises, he makes promises to every specific individual and I think that's just clearly not true. Um, so then the, the question I would have is when you go back to Genesis and God says that he will be God to Abraham and his offspring, or when you come to the new covenant passages and God promises to be not just God to believers, but God to their children, like Jeremiah 32, then is he promising to be God to every single child of every single believer? Well, I think we would both agree that that not necessarily. But I think that there is a pattern here that's established from the beginning, and that is that God is a covenant God who keeps covenant to a thousand generations. And so his normative pattern is to be God to believers and their children. And his normative pattern is to give the spirit to those who are his and to their children at whatever time he sees fit in his eternal decree and, and in his sovereignty and in his providence, I don't think here that we should write off the, the promise-keeping and the covenant-keeping of God just because we don't necessarily think he's going to do this for every single individual. Well, see, I'm not, I'm not writing off that God's a liar or saying God's a liar or anything like that. I think there's a controlling phrase in Acts 2.38, and it's those who God calls to himself. This is why I see election in this passage and not merely covenantal baptism. Now, we're going to see that differently, and I, I'm really trying to think through what you're saying, but we all have our presuppositions. Um, probably should move on because we'd probably spend the rest of the episode on this text alone. So let's give you let's give you some good text to work with. Um 1 Corinthians 1.16, this is a household baptism. This is the household of Stephanus. And uh, Paul's just <clears throat> basically like, I, he says, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So, Tyler, this is a household baptism. So, you think this is, again, the normative pattern of Paul and the preaching of the apostles, correct? Yeah, I mean, I think I think this is the pattern from Genesis on. I think here you clearly see that the household of Stephanus was baptized, which would not have been anything abnormal for, for those who knew the way God has worked from the beginning. And it is interesting, two things here that, that interest me, and that is Crispus, who is mentioned – 
Mm-hmm. His household also was baptized according to Acts 18.8. But Paul doesn't even mention his household. He just mentions the head of his household here. And so that should make us wonder if Paul does this, when he mentions the head of his household or the heads of the household, does he imply necessarily that the household was baptized when he mentions just the head? Uh, Because that happens here. And I'm not going to be dogmatic about that. I'm not going to die on that hill, but it is interesting to me that he mentions Crispus and not his household, even though his household clearly was was baptized. Um, and, and the other thing, too, which gets lost, I think, in translation, and that is, Paul says, and I don't know if I baptized anyone else. Well, that's the way the ESV translated, translates it. But what's interesting is that the Greek could literally be any other, meaning any other households. So that, I think, is another argument, potentially, and I wouldn't be overly dogmatic about this either. I think it's inconclusive on its own. But if any other means any other households, then that also shows us that the normative pattern was household baptisms, not just individuals and not just individuals as they came to faith at whatever age they were. And I would also add this in here, that when we're talking about baptism and baptism of the children of believers after they've come to faith later in life, I do want to point out because Baptists are always on my case about arguments of silence and stuff. But I want to point out that that also I think should be a problem for those who are studying these things and working out these things. There is not one single time in scripture and the new Testament scriptures where the children of believers are baptized later in life after they come to faith. That does not exist. So nobody can point to that as an example of children being baptized, which means that the argument has to come from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's an, an important thing to point out. But I do want to, if you don't mind, I have one more thing to um, to show us here. I've got the time, brother. I, it's, you're the one that's on a time crunch. <laughs> Yeah, well, well, I know. Did you wanna did you wanna push back at all on that? No, I, I don't have any pushback because um, besides for the <clears throat> the Baptists in my listening group that might be going, well, what about the end of First Corinthians where Paul talks about uh, it's First Corinthians sixteen eight. And he talks about Stephanus, and he says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus because they made up for your absence. Um <clears throat> refresh my spirit. I'm, maybe that is not the right passage. Uh, hold on. What was I supposed to go to? I'll Second edit this 15. Up. 15. There it is. Sorry, guys. 15. He says, now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject as to these. So the only pushback is, you know, I think we're hard-pressed to find infants in the household of Stephanus, but I think the Paedo-Baptists have fair arguments when you say, like, okay, we can't just sit here and argue from silence. And, uh, you know, there is no example of, um, you know, a convert talking about his 12-year-old that professed Christ and was baptized by Paul. We don't have that. We don't have that. That's just something that we've been practicing in America for the last few hundred years. So. Right. 
Uh, so go on. That was my only pushback. But again, there's it's it's not heavy and it's not a nail in my coffin or your coffin. I think it's just something to to observe. Yeah, you know, a case like this in First Corinthians, what I would say is, and I think you and I would agree that this on its own is not conclusive, and I don't think this is where we would stand to build our case. But I would say also that if you look at Acts 16, and I won't read all of it, that we have a clear example in Acts 16 with the Philippian jailer where he and his household were baptized, every one of them um, who were in his household. And it says, this is amazing to me, Acts 16 and 34, that he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household. Why? That he, singular, had believed in God. So I think here we have a very clear example of a household baptism which occurred ultimately and primarily because he had believed in God. And for some reason, Luke is stressing that he there. It is a singular um, word for the Philippian jailer who represents his house. And because he believed, they all rejoice and they're all baptized. And so I think the, the argument for Baptists and Paedo-Baptists, at least my argument, is not that we should assume that there are children here. That's not my argument. Now, could there be children? Could there be eight-day-old infants here? Absolutely. Could there be three-year-olds? Could there be two-year-olds? Absolutely. The text doesn't say. What the text does say is that he and his household were baptized. And why is that important? It's important because that's the way God has been working since Genesis. And that's my argument. My argument is primarily the hermeneutic. My argument is not to read into the text things that may or may not be there people who may or may not be there, but it is to see the pattern of God that exists starting in Genesis. And so we should be looking for God to stop that pattern and to do something different clearly if he wants to. And I think what we see is that he doesn't do that, but the pattern remains, which means that if there are children in the house, if there are two-year-olds in the house, if there are six-month-year-olds in the house, the six-month-olds in the house, then they would be baptized along with their house because their their parent, father or mother, believed. That's, I think, the argument. But are you suggesting that the household of the jailer were – there were unbelievers in the household? Well, I, I would not necessarily say there were unbelievers in the household. I would say that if they were – if they were at a place where they could consciously and physically and mentally believe and assent to what was going on, then they were baptized. I, I'm not sure that – and I don't think it would because be – Because I, I, other than the word household, uh, Tyler, I don't see what this text does for your position other than the word household because they all rejoiced. I, I – that sounds like an awesome conversion story of a household to me, but you know, maybe I'm missing your point. Yeah, well, my point is is that in looking at all these texts that way, I think what's happening is that children who are consciously and physically unable to have some kind of miraculous conversion experience, they are naturally excluded 
which is not the way God has ever worked at all. And I think that's my biggest issue with the the Baptist position, the Credo Baptist position, is that it necessarily excludes children because children cannot respond the way that they do, and they cannot respond because they don't have the physical, mental, or emotional capabilities. But my question is, if salvation is ultimately of the Lord, and if ultimately the thing that matters is the Spirit of God regenerating human beings, bringing forgiveness, bringing grace, bringing the indwelling spirit, bringing justification, then it is just as possible for an infant in the womb, like John the Baptist, to be regenerate and justified as it is for a 35-year-old man to repent and believe because of the very same work of God by his spirit. And all of that together is symbolized in baptism. So I, I think the problem that I have is that we now because of what we read in Acts in certain places, because of repentance and faith and baptism, baptism which sets apart the people of God from all the other peoples of, of the world, we now are excluding our children because they cannot physically do what adults do, which has never been the way that God has functioned. So I, I think that when we really get to the core of the issue, we are actually saying that children can't belong until they grow up. And I think that's not the way scripture treats our children at all. But instead, Jesus says he takes these little children who can't do anything for him, these little uh, a brephos, an infant, he holds it in his arms, he blesses that infant, which is no small thing. That's the ironic blessing. That's the name of God being placed upon this child's head. And then he says to them belongs the kingdom of God. And I think I think when we start arguing the way you're arguing, you end up excluding the children until they can grow up and become adults, which is the opposite, ultimately, of the way God has that, always worked. That's, that's not true. I'm not saying they have to be adults. I'm saying they have to be cognizant. Right. But, but uh, continuing on, is it – now, I mean, I'm ignorant of this. When Jesus and the little children come to him, do we know that they're infants? Absolutely. Yeah. In some gospels, you have the word for just little children, uh, like Padea, I think is the word there. But then in Luke, I think it's Luke explicitly, he uses the word brephos, which is the same word used to describe John the Baptist in the womb and and uh, Jesus as a baby um, after his birth. So yes, is explicitly there infant, uh, infants that he is holding in his hands and blessing. And and I, I, I understand. But you would agree that, there's no baptism there, right? No, there's no ba baptism necessarily there. But the point is, is that Jesus is including the children of these people who are bringing their children to Jesus in the same way that God has always included the children of believers, the children of his people forever. That's my point, is that they are never excluded we don't know the secret things of God. We don't know election. We don't know whether they're regenerate in the womb or three days after they're born or when all of those things are taking place. But my point is that God has been working this way from Genesis with no change, no obvious change, which means that any kind of change that we think is happening, any kind of exclusion of the children now from receiving the sign of the covenant it is all implied 
and what we're seeing, it's not because God has explicitly changed the pattern. So in general terms, to make it as simple as possible, the question really is this. If Abraham and his seed were marked off by the same sign, Abraham believed and received the sign, that's credo circumcision, and then Isaac is signified and sealed with that sign well before he can believe. If that's the pattern, and that's the sign of the covenant for the covenant people of God in the old covenant, then why would the children of believers not receive the sign of the covenant in the new covenant, which is greater and fuller and inclusive of even women now? Who did not have the sign yes, of the covenant? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make that point when we get to the new covenant because I, you keep saying there's no change. Well, there's a lot of change, and that's I think that's what Baptists are trying to say. But let's get to the final script. Let's, man, we are running out of time. Uh, <laughs> this is great. <laughs> okay, what would you rather cover? First Corinthians chapter seven or uh, what do I have on my list here? First Peter, Second Peter. Well, for me, 1 Corinthians 7, 14, I think is a very clear text okay. in my position. Let's, so, let's, let's do that. Let's give you your let's give you your text. I'm going to exclude 1 Peter 3, 18 because I'm trying to get into more meat of this conversation. So let's talk about 1 Corinthians 7, 14. Uh, this is Paul talking about marriage and divorce and what you're supposed to do in the new covenant. <clears throat> anyway, uh, he says, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Okay, so the the key words here are holy. I mean, this this does on the surface seem covenantal. The question is, Paul's addressing, you know, living with an unbeliever. So how do you – what's going on in this text, Tyler? Help me understand what's going on. Well, I did preach an entire sermon on this. So if our listeners want to go back to my YouTube page at some point or maybe we can post it, uh, I did address this in a almost an hour-long sermon. But I do think, yes, this is a, a passage that is very clearly dealing with the covenant family and the way these children relate to the covenant people of, of God. Because from their perspective, you know, 1 Corinthians especially, Paul is has littered this book with Old Testament imagery, Israel under Moses coming out, 1 Corinthians 10, you've got all this stuff. And they've been trained up now on these old covenant scriptures. And when you go back to the Old Testament, there are places where God makes believers or his people separate from the nations. Uh, you see that on Ezra and Nehemiah. And so surely you have these people now in Corinth who are coming to faith. Maybe they're a husband. They've come to faith. Their wife is not uh, a believer. And so now having been taught these old covenant scriptures, the question is what in the world do I do? Do I separate from my spouse? That's what they did back then. What do I do? What's the position of my children? Uh, what's their standing in the church and before God and all of this stuff? And I think Paul teaches us here that very thing. And he says here essentially that the unbelieving spouse, whether it's a husband or a wife, is, is made holy. And I think that means set apart for a, a certain holy purpose, 
even though they're unbelievers, which means that God is not calling them to separate if they're married and one's a believer and one's an unbeliever. But instead, God is going to even use this unbelieving spouse to bring into being holy children. And I think this is very important because holy in Scripture means set apart. It means sanctified. It means set apart for the purposes of God. And it says that if he had not done this, if God had not used these unbelieving spouses and set them apart, that these children would be unclean. And that language, if you know the Old Testament, for our listeners, that is unclean is to be cut off. Unclean is to not belong. Unclean is to be excluded. It is to be unwashed. But instead, he says that, no, they are not unclean, but they are. They, they are holy, which means that these children of at least one professing believer, they, they do belong. They are set apart for God in this family, or we would say they are covenant children. They are holy. And some, like Thomas Goodwin, a famous historical Reformed theologian, he was on the Westminster Assembly, he argues in his collected works that this very well in many cases could mean that these children were regenerate even from the womb, that they were filled with the Spirit, that they were holy in that sense. And of course, that's debated, that's argued about in the Reformed community. But I would say at very least, at the very least, at the very lowest rung, what we see here very clearly is that these children of at least one believer were set apart from the other children in the world. They were holy and not unclean like the rest. And when you think about how does God do that, how does he mark them off as holy? How does he set them apart? Well, the way he's done that historically forever, starting in Genesis, is by the sign of the covenant that sets them apart as holy, which is why I would go here to argue from a covenantal perspective and from the language that these children are holy and clean, which means washed. They've been baptized. Okay, but what about the unbelieving spouse? Well, the language there is important, I think. The language there says that these unbelieving spouses have been made holy. They have been set apart for a special purpose. They have been set apart for a purpose of God, whereas the, the child is holy. And I think that's a distinction in language, made holy versus is holy. And I think that's that is an important thing to see. I, but I think your hermeneutic, I think the unbelieving husband should be baptized. Why not? Well, if they're unbelieving and if they are adamantly against the faith, then I do think in those situations, putting the sign of the covenant upon them is not the right thing to do. But um, if they're made holy and in the covenant, the words are the same. It's a verbal form of the same word of the child. So I think we're doing mental gymnastics not to equate the child and the and the and the husband here in their holiness. So why baptism for one and not the other? Because the one is ignorant of the gospel and the other is unbelieving in their hardened heart, right? Yeah, well, I mean, if the if the adult here is clearly unbelieving and resistant and rebellious against the gospel, they are not holy intrinsically. They're not holy in this in the sense that they are right before God. 
or anything like that, but they are being set apart here for holy purposes. That's the idea. Why? So that God can bring about holy offspring, which is the child who is not unclean, but holy. And this also is the pattern of God in scripture, right? You go back to Malachi and he's talking about husbands and wives and this marriage. And he says, why? What's the purpose? To bring about holy offspring, which I think goes back goes back all the way uh, to the beginning, that God is working through believers and their seed, not just individuals cut off from their families necessarily, but he is a covenant-keeping and generational loving God. Is the unbelieving husband in the covenant? Yes. If they attend with the people of God, if they belong to the people of God, if they have been baptized, even if they are not I mean, who knows what this unbelieving looks like here, right? We're assuming a lot of things, I think, with that well. We're, as well. we're modernists, right? I mean, we live in 2020. You know, this isn't the first century. But when we see unbelieving, we're thinking unregenerate and not believing in the gospel, which I'm pretty sure that's what Paul means, too. Right. But at the same time, what if this unbelieving here means that they they come with me, they act like they believe, Um not really sure. They don't really look like I do. They're not reading the Bible as much as I am. They aren't praying as much as I am. Maybe they're unbelievers. I don't know. And if they are unbelievers who have been baptized and who have been coming with me, then what about my children? What does that mean for them? And I think Paul tells us that the children of at least one believing parent are holy. They are sanctified. They are set apart. They're not unclean. They are holy. So I don't I don't think, and Thomas Goodwin and many others would not equate the holiness of the offspring with the sanctification that is in view with the unbelieving spouse. The idea here is that the unbelieving spouse, depending on who knows what their attitude is outwardly, they are, whether they like it or not, being set apart by God with the believing spouse to bring it about that God has holy offspring from from these believers. And, And I think that's that's fairly clear in the text, and um, I don't well, know. Of course, of course, they're not they're not going to equate them because it works against your position. Because most Presbyterians don't practice baptizing adult unbelievers, <laughs> um, but that's fair. I think again, I I don't know what to do with this passage. I'm not. It's really difficult because I feel like if I accept the Pado Baptist position, I feel like. I don't I don't see a difference in the unbelieving husband and then the child because they are both made holy due to the believing spouse. Um, well, but that's I, go on. But I think right there you you said they are both made holy and I would say no that's not what it says that the the unbelieving spouse is made holy they are sanctified they are set apart whereas the child is holy. And I think that is a distinction, and that's a distinction that Thomas Goodwin brings about, that this it's not an unbelieving child who is being made holy necessarily because of a believing parent. But according to the text, it is a, a child who is holy because of the believing spouse. And I think that is different, and I think that's why if we try to equate the the holiness of the unbelieving spouse with the holiness of the child who is not unclean but holy, then I think we end up misunderstanding what Paul is saying. These children are not unclean. 
They're not cut off. They're not unholy. They're not of the world, but instead they are holy, meaning they do belong to the covenant people of God. And might the unbelieving spouse belong to the covenant people of God? Maybe, but that all depends. Do they actually belong to the visible covenant people? And that he doesn't tell us necessarily. They may not. Well, I guess what's hard for me, and we'll we'll let it rest after this, is he's talking about principles of marriage, and again, I it just seems weird to go on a covenantal tirade about holiness of children when we're talking about divorce and and you know devoting yourselves to prayer and things like that, and then all of a sudden, oh by the way, your children are holy because of the covenant. I don't know, maybe that makes perfect sense to you, but it's baptism definitely isn't in view here, but the covenant could be. So that's why I wanted to talk about this passage because I, I, I see this quoted a lot and I, I really don't know what to do with it. I, I'm giving it to you because I just, it, those are my objections, but I, I don't think they're the best ever. But, um, you know, you're, you're much more experienced with the reformers on these kind of passages. I haven't read a lot of, um, some of the people you're quoting. I just, you know, I have my upbringing and how I've been taught that maybe this is about, you know, whether your children are uh, um, legitimate or not. I'm not so sure that works either. So we'll we'll drop it from there. But for the finally, let's get into because we looks like we got 20 minutes left. I'm hoping we can get a good discussion in 20 minutes, but it's you. I'm sure we can. <laughs> <laughs> so over and over and over. You have said the pattern has not changed. If it did change, God would have said something, right? Okay, what about the new covenant, though? What about Jeremiah 31? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall teach one his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. Now, I know we believe this is an absolute reality for the elect. Tyler and I are absolutely in agreement that for those who have been predestined and chosen in the grace of God, this is a reality. Their their iniquity is forgiven, remembered no more. So here's here's kind of my little, uh, here's my thesis of <clears throat> my biggest issue with paedo-baptism. The assertion is nothing's changed. Well, well, maybe you wouldn't say nothing's changed, but the assertion is the patterns haven't changed. But I think they have. Number one, women are baptized. Uh, women weren't circumcised. Number two, we've just heard Tyler say he would not baptize an unbeliever, but we know that unbelievers were circumcised in Israel. 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, they were all circumcised, regardless of their disposition on God or not, and a lot of them were apostates. That's Israel 101, Old Testament. Uh, I want to respond real quick to the Americans are obsessed with themselves. Yeah, that's true. The Western culture is very selfish in how we handle our theology, and I think it, it, it rears its ugly head in a lot of things. However, I think salvation is holy, uh, and not holy as in holy, holy, but like holy in, in, the, in the whole individual. Because Matthew 10.35, Jesus says he came to divide families. 
he came to divide families. And the gospel of salvation is absolutely individual, and that's exactly what we mean by unconditional election. We don't read about household election. And I think the household mentioned in Acts are probably, this is just an opinion, they're probably highlighted due to the rarity of a household conversion because of how offensive the gospel actually is. So my question for Tyler is the nature of the new covenant. How do you deal with infant baptism? You're saying it's a sign of the covenant and they're in the covenant. But if if the substance of the new covenant is Christ and forgiveness of sins, how do you deal with that for an infant that may or may not be elect? So let's let's jump into that. Well, I want to make clear when I say that nothing has changed, clearly things have changed. And this is why if you read Westminster Confession 7, it talks about the single covenant of grace, which we talked about in the beginning, in Christ ultimately, and that covenantal framework, the covenant of grace goes through different administrations. So I think it begins in Genesis 3.15. You see it go through Noah and the salvation of he and his house on the ark. You see it administered in and through Abraham. So these are the the, the ways that God is administering the, the single saving grace that he offers to, to the world. So when we talk about nothing having changed, I don't mean that absolutely. Things are changing. Things are progressing. But what I do mean is that the substance of the covenant of grace, it never changes. It is always salvation by grace through faith in the promised Savior who is announced in Genesis 3.15 and on. So that is not changing, whereas the outer accidental properties are changing. There are types, there are shadows, there are promises, there are prophecies that are coming to fulfillment, that are moving forward. That's the way redemptive history is working. But the substance of the covenant is not changing. And I would say when you come to Jeremiah 31 or Hebrews 8 or any of the other new covenant or eternal covenant passages, we have to understand that or what we end up doing is we end up saying in some way that there is actually not a covenant of grace in the old covenant. There is not actually grace. There is not actually forgiveness of sins. There's not actually the law written on the people of God's hearts until the new covenant is established in the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of the Son, which is utterly false. And I think, or I hope that you and I would agree on that. that no, well I, I don't say that at all. I would say what's new is all will know the Lord, and it's not a mixed community anymore. So go on. Yeah, I would affirm that absolutely in the elect, from the elect standpoint, from an invisible church standpoint, and from an ultimate final judgment separating of the sheep from the goats standpoint. I think that there is an eschatological element to this where in the end, all of the people of God will know the Lord. There will not be any unbelievers. There will not be anyone who doesn't know the Lord in the assembly of the Lord. But you and I both know for a fact that that's simply not true now. So either God doesn't keep his promises and the new covenant isn't as wonderful as God says, or this is not talking necessarily about the present time in regard to the visible church. And I think this is one of the issues 
is that when I'm talking about infant baptism and household baptism and inclusion in the covenant and all of that stuff, what I'm talking about ultimately is what we're seeing, what God is doing in the world. We're not talking necessarily about the doctrine of election, the doctrine of regeneration, the invisible church, because quite frankly, we don't know any of that stuff. We know that the elect will be saved. We know the elect will be regenerated. We know that they'll be justified and glorified. And in the end, the elect will be synonymous with the visible covenant community. But I think the scriptures teach us even clearly in the New Testament that that is not the reality now, which means that there's something else going on here. And I think what's going on here is that the the transition that's in view, the new covenant, which is not like the one before, the comparison here is not between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I think that's one of the most important things that people need to see when they read this. This is not something that was from Genesis to Malachi, and now that's over, and now Matthew to Revelation is what we care about. That's not what's being said here, because that's not the comparison. The comparison here explicitly is the new covenant in comparison to Moses. It is in comparison to the Mosaic covenant. So it's not in comparison to Abraham. It's not in comparison to anything else necessarily. It is only in comparison to Moses and the covenant that was made at Sinai, the Ten Commandments, the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, the priesthood, all of that stuff. That's the comparison. And I think if you go to Galatians 3 and 4, Paul makes this explicit. It's the mosaic, yeah, it's the Mosaic covenant that comes into being after Abraham. And Paul even says that that covenantal structure under Moses, it doesn't change the promises that were made to Abraham. It doesn't change them. It doesn't get rid of them. It doesn't replace them. But instead, Moses came and Moses is passing away, but the promise remains, which means right. – Which means – I'm sorry <laughs> – No. Well, I was going to say that I think in Galatians 3, what Paul ultimately ends up saying, which is what Reformed theologians believe, at least those in my camp, the historical Reformed paedo-baptist position, that what Paul ends up arguing there is that the substance promised to Abraham, it is the very substance of the new covenant, which means that what's in view in, in Jeremiah 31 is not the New Testament in relation to the Old Testament, but it is it is a, a recapitulation of the very things that were promised to Abraham, namely righteousness, justification by faith, the promised spirit, offspring, ultimately in Christ. They are, in a sense, simultaneously the same. They are the same in substance, even though the covenant with Abraham was made in promises, types, and shadows. So what that tells me is that when you come to Jeremiah 31, the comparison that's being made here is not an absolute comparison. It is not telling us that now the new covenant is is coming, and now for the first time ever in history, forgiveness of sins will be offered, that the law will be written on the heart of God's people. Clearly, that cannot be what it's saying, because I think you and I would agree that 
that Abraham was justified in Acts or in Genesis 15, and therefore he was regenerate. Yes, he had so, to be. Oh, of course. But see, Galatians 3 is part of the reason I still hold my position because the Mosaic law did not annul the promises to Abraham, right? Right. Amen. Right. Right. So we, we are we are contrasting some some covenants here. But here's the thing. He says it was promised to his seed, who is Christ. And then Paul goes on to say, if you're baptized into Christ, you are, and, and you know, <clears throat> many of you baptized into Christ, put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There's no male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're a Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So all those who are Christ are the offspring of Abraham. Okay, so my point is, if we're children of the promise and we're united to Christ, the blood of the covenant is is Christ's blood. I have a hard time baptizing the infant and thinking the infant is united to Christ when I I don't. Do you get do you get my problem here? Because I feel like we're saying Christ is the high priest for that infant and he's the perfect high priest. He's the better high priest. And I don't I don't get that. I don't get that from the scriptures. I feel like there's got to be some knowledge and profession. And yes, I know we baptize people who end up unregenerate, but we don't claim to see into the heart. Your position is actively baptizing unprofessing and often non-regenerate people. So I that that's I that's kind of where I'm at with Galatians because I feel like Galatians still falls in my favor of the ultimate covenant is with the elect. And I Absolutely. think part of it, but see, I think the difference between me and you is I had to, in your opinion, I might have an over-realized eschatology and you still think we're in the wilderness. Yes. I think what we're doing here, when we start talking like this, not just you and me, but I think anybody who's engaging in this debate, I think this is where we start talking past each other because what you're emphasizing is the covenant of grace and the substance of it and true forgiveness and true regeneration and all of that that comes by the spirit, which is only for the elect. And in that situation, you and I absolutely utterly agree that the blood of Christ and its salvific substance, it only is applied to the elect. And that's true no matter, no matter what. It doesn't matter whether the, the child is, is six months old or whether um, the adult is 45 years old. If they have not been elected from before the foundation of the world, they will not be regenerate, they will not be justified, and in that sense, Christ is not their mediator, and he does not give them or secure for them forgiveness of sins. So when you start, this is where I think we have to not talk past each other. When you go down the route of talking about the secret things of God, which is typically where it goes, uh, especially when you're talking to, to Baptists or, or Reformed Covenantal Baptists, in all of that, I would say amen. That that when you talk about the the secret decree of election, when you talk about forgiveness, none of that can ultimately be given to anybody who does not fall into the elect people of God. That cannot happen. But the problem is that the Bible is not presenting to us the way we are to live and the way we are to preach and the way we are to raise up our children in that language and that terminology. So if, if we knew that a child was elect or regenerate from the womb, then 
sure, we baptize them. If we knew they were, then we wouldn't. But, but we don't know any of that. We don't know if a person that we're baptizing at 40 is truly regenerate. I've baptized plenty of people who were here. They were professing Christ. They've walked away, and they won't respond to your phone calls, your messages, and you presume that they are unregenerate, and they're not believing, and they're walking away. So I, I just I, think you need to— I, Sorry, bro. I'm sorry. No, brother. you're no. It's it's not you, and it's not me. There's a lag. Um, so I just occurred to me we need to have a part two to this discussion because I think one of the best arguments for your side is the apostasy passages. There has to be something to rebel from. There has to be a covenant to trample the blood of. Okay. I don't Absolutely. think the Baptist. I don't think the Baptist arguments are very good there. But I am going to have a Reformed Baptist on to talk about some of that stuff. To be fair. But would you agree to part two, just specifically talking about apostasy of the covenant? Absolutely. Yeah, I awesome. think that I think that is very important because, you know, when you talk with Baptists, even reading Spurgeon, whom I love, I love Spurgeon, they make all of these apostasy passages, hypothetical realities that can never actually happen. It's stupid. I think it's stupid. <laughs> yeah. Well, why? Because they are emphasizing the invisible realities that we ha know nothing about. They're emphasizing election. They're emphasizing the perseverance of the saints. And what you clearly see in Romans 11, what you clearly see in Hebrews is that people can belong to the covenant in a real way and they can apostatize from it and go to hell forever. And, and be broken so, off in unbelief. Yeah. Yeah. These, see, are these, the, are, these, are, these are arguments that I – why I am really trying to consider the paedo-baptist position. Listeners, I want you to understand, even though I've, I've had some heated responses with Tyler, I'm just trying to grill him because I actually am trying to consider this position and not merely just have Tyler on to argue with him because that's that's silly. No, I, I, I want to hear his side and possibly believe his side, okay? But, you know, we had to get through some of the, the talking past each other, and I think what I've found out is Tyler sees the new covenant of Jeremiah and Hebrews as an already but not yet thing. Can I, is that fair? Absolutely. I think it's clear that not everybody who belongs to the visible covenant community necessarily knows the Lord. And it's obviously not clear that nobody needs to be taught because here I am <laughs> as a pastor at Redemption Life Bible Church uh, teaching the things of God to, to lots of different people. So I think Yes, the, the new covenant in its secret, hidden substance, yes, the invisible church, the elect of God, they all know the Lord, they're all regenerate, all of that stuff. But I think right now we are in a period of time where the visible church is made up of regenerate and sometimes unregenerate people who can truly belong, they can truly be um, in covenant with God, they can break covenant, they can apostatize, and they can perish and I, I think that's a clear teaching in the New Testament. I, I agree. And as a Calvinist, I kind of feel like we look stupid when we try to explain our way out of apostasy passages when we just say, well, it's just hypothetical. I don't right. You know, I've never liked that part of my system. I'm on record saying I think perseverance of the saints is one of the hardest points of Calvinism to defend because it seems like people don't persevere. Uh, in the New Testament that were really saved. So we have to figure out what's going on with that language. And I would love to 
get an in-depth discussion of that. But Tyler, this has been a great discussion. I have a lot to think about. Truly, I have a lot to think about. And I hope you understood my arguments is not directed at you personally, but just trying to understand what's going on. Absolutely, brother, for sure. Was there any closing thoughts, any final cases you want to make for covenant theology and covenant baptism to leave our listeners thinking about? Uh, because uh, listeners, I will be interviewing a Reformed Baptist very soon um, to get that perspective again and, and figure out how they deal with uh, the covenant of grace, because there's actually some differences in the way they see the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. So Tyler, what 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 would your closing thoughts be? Or maybe you need something to say to me to clarify to me. Go for it. No, I, I think what I want to say at the end is – When we think about the covenant of grace, if we understand that it runs from Genesis 3.15 on, then the question is, in that covenant, how has God always dealt with his covenant people? How has he he met with them? Who has he called? What have his promises been? And I think what we see is that he deals with believers and their children, and that's— what we see in the Old Testament, and if that same covenant of grace is what is in view in the New Covenant, even though the tabernacle and the temple have given way to Christ, even though the sacrifices have given way to the blood of Christ, even though the priesthood has given way to the blood of Christ, if it's the same substance, if it's the same covenant reality by which we've been saved from the beginning, whether it's Abel or Noah, And if God in that single covenant of grace, which extends from then until now, if he's always included believers and their their children in that community, in his people, then, then where has he stopped doing that? And where in scripture does he make it clear that the children of believers are no longer included? And I think you will not find it. And so if we see one covenant, one people, one way of salvation, one gracious work of God in and through his people's lives starting in Genesis, I think we see a consistent pattern that's carried on into the new covenant. And uh, that would mean then that we should give our children the sign of the covenant, which now is baptism. All right. That's fair enough. And one final question for you, Tyler, because I'm I'm sure the Baptists are waiting for me to hit you with it. What about pedo communion? Do you give young infant, young young children communion that don't understand or believe? Would you, or would you reserve that to someone who's made a, a profession of acknowledgement and understanding of the gospel? Yeah, I reject pedo communion, which is also historically re- the reform position. I think pedo communion is is not biblical, and I think when you look at the Lord's Supper, Paul clearly tells those who are present to examine themselves. And I don't think a nine-day-old infant can examine himself, which means that he should not be taking the Lord's Supper. So I, I think he can be baptized into the covenant community because he does belong to the people of God. Uh, he or she does belong to the people of God. But the Lord's Supper is is something uh something else. It is the the confirmation, if you will. So I would not let a child uh, without a profession of faith, without a growth in the knowledge of God and faith in Christ, they would not take communion, no. Okay. And, you know, 
maybe we can get into this on the next episode, but we're I'd like to know how you consistently feel that the ordinances of the church can go to an unbelieving infant and but only to a believer of with communion. I think that's kind of the the Baptist argument there. And specifically you said that well Paul clearly says this and this and this about communion. Well, clearly Acts says this and this and this about baptism. So we're kind of maybe at a stalemate, but you're still going to hold on to the household principle, and I respect that. And I want to dive deeper into it, Tyler. You are a fantastic uh, friend and pastor and expositor of the Word of God, and I look forward to many, many more conversations. So thank you for being on my podcast today, and I look forward to the part two. Amen. Well, thanks for having me, brother. I really appreciate it.